Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, guest host Dr. Sarah Wise talks with Drs. Peter Papagenopoulos and Nitin Adapa about their article, Comparison of High-Flow CSF Leak Closure with Nasoceptal Flap Following Endoscopic Endonasal Approach in Adult and Pediatric Populations. Welcome to this edition of Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your host for this episode, Dr. Sarah Wise from Atlanta, Georgia. Today I'm joined by Dr. Nitin Adapa from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia and Dr. Peter Papagianopoulos, previously also at the University of Pennsylvania, now at Rush University in Chicago. Today we'll be discussing their recent IFAR publication, Comparison of High Flow CSF Leak Closure with Nasal Septal Flap Following Endoscopic Endonasal Approach in adults and pediatric populations. Welcome, Nitin and Peter, and congratulations to you and your co-authors on the paper. Thank Sarah, you so thank much, you for having much for having us. So in recent decades, we've seen transnasal endoscopic skull-based surgery progress significantly from relatively simple closure of cerebrospinal fluid leaks and routine pituitary surgery to endoscopic resection of larger and larger lesions. Rhinologists and neurosurgeons confidently take on intracranial lesions with excellent visualization afforded by continued advances in endoscope technology. Surgeons navigate around critical structures regularly. In addition, reported outcomes are at least equivalent to transcranial approaches, with certain outcome measures being better when the surgery is performed endoscopically, depending on the specific outcome being assessed. One of the important aspects of planning transnasal endoscopic skull base surgery is consideration of the type of skull base closure that will be employed. We know that patients with postoperative cerebrospinal fluid leak and pneumocephalus can potentially have longer hospital stays, readmissions, and highly morbid or even life-threatening complications. These aspects of endoscopic skull base surgery have been evaluated and reported in the literature as expanded transnasal approaches have become increasingly employed. However, the most frequent literature reports are in series of adult patients undergoing endoscopic endonasal approaches. At the University of Pennsylvania, you all have really been on the forefront of exploring transnasal endoscopic skull-based surgery possibilities in children. The study that we're discussing today looks at endoscopic endonasal skull-based surgery in children who had an endoscopic endonasal approach and skull base closure with nasoceptal flap, the workhorse of skull base closures. You compare your experience in children versus adults, especially highlighting the rate of cerebrospinal fluid leaks that occurred. What made you all interested in taking on this topic? Thanks, Sarah. So this was a topic that we were interested in for quite a while. So we really started uh, doing a lot of pediatric cases in about 2011 where we started working with uh, Jay Storm, who's the chief of neurosurgery over at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And initially, when we started doing these cases, uh, we were very paranoid that we were going to see a much higher rate of CSF leak failures. Essentially, there's a lot of precautions that we can talk about later that we take in our adult population that we didn't think the kids would follow. And because of that, we, we were very worried that we'd see a lot more leaks. And interestingly enough, we actually did not see any uh, increase in re- leak rates anecdotally, but clearly needed the data to follow up. 
So as we accrued this data, that's when Pete, uh, what year, Pete, were you a fell over a pen? That was 2018 and finished in June of 2019. Exactly. So right about that time, we had enough of a, a significant data pull of our pediatric patients to really compare to the adult patients to actually give us a good assessment as to whether we're going to see any issues as far as leaks in those kids and how that compares to the adult population, just for both our understanding, but also for the general public rhinologists doing these type of cases. Yeah, I think this is really important for us to understand. I think, you know, a lot of what we take on in children does not necessarily translate to the adult population. So this is definitely important to be looked at in this particular type of skull-based surgery. Can you all tell us more about the methodology in this paper and kind of give us a general summary of the results? Yeah, I'd love to start discussing that. So mainly we did this through a retrospective review. We at Penn kept a large database of all skull-based patients, both adult and pediatric. And in that database, we also kept a very tight data set about kind of complications about what the postoperative course is like. Obviously, one of the main outcomes was, was there a CSF leak uh, postoperatively? Was there a lumbar drain used? You know, what exactly was the uh, repair we used? So first thing we did is we just identified uh, just through that database, all pediatric patients defined as less than 18 years old and all adult patients defined as greater than 18 years old with an intracranial tumor. Specifically, we wanted to do an intracranial tumor because that was going to be, those would be likely skull-based defects large enough to kind of be considered a large reconstructive defect. So we took that between 2012 and 2019, which was uh, my fellowship year, and we included patients that we defined as having a high flow leak, which was defined specifically as a skull-based defect greater than two centimeters square as part of a supercellar transplantum transcribiform or transclival extended transplantal approach with visualization of a ventricle. We did exclude anybody with a pituitary adenoma. The reason was that it just happened to be that in our case series, none of them had a large enough defect to be included. Otherwise, we would have included had they met kind of the size requirements that I mentioned previously. All of these patients both adult or pediatric, were closed in a multi-layer fashion. Essentially, everybody would get durigen, fascia lata, and an flap. And occasionally, some of these patients would get abdominal fat or thigh fat as well if the defect was deemed large enough by the surgeons. So looking at results, we identified 53 pediatric patients that fit the above inclusion criteria, and 67 adults were identified as well. that We, can, we use them as a comparison group. I'll touch on kind of the tumor pathology briefly, just by saying one of the biggest differences in the paper is just what the pathology was. So in adults, it tended to be meningioma. 44 of those 67 adults had a, had a meningioma. Well, in the pediatric group, the much more likely pathology was craniopharyngeal, which is 41 out of those 53 pediatric patients. Our main outcome measure in this was pretty straightforward. We wanted to see, was there a difference, you know, using the same reconstructive techniques now, was there a difference in post-operative CSF leak? And I think the, the good thing is that both groups had a low leak rate. These are considered difficult skull-based lesions to close. And the pediatric leak rate was 3.77%. And the adult leak rate was 7.46%. The p-value was 0.462. So it was kind of proof of concept in that these patients can be closed with these large defects and that there is really no difference between the adult patient and the pediatric patient. Excellent. You touched on the main questions that I had in this paper. 
which was with regard to pituitary adenomas. You know, certainly we can see giant adenomas sometimes that can extend into the supracellar cistern and ventricles. And, um, you know, sometimes those defects can be quite large, but it sounds like that, that you just didn't encounter any of those in your particular series. Or specifically, they just didn't have like a large enough defect with a leak that we could include. Plus, I think once you include these pituitaries, then it gets a little foggy on the size of the defect, the size of the hole. And I think everyone knows pituitary CSF leaks, not these massive ones that you're talking about, Sarah, but the other ones are are really small leaks that the, the number needed to see here to actually get a meaningful number here. That, that's what we were trying to avoid. We, were, we really wanted to go after just big defects. It would really show out whether there's a difference in the, the leak rate long-term. I completely agree. It does come out cleaner if you exclude those. And, and certainly those giant pituitary adenomas don't come along um, as frequently as, as many of the others. So, um, so that does keep the, the data clean. I was interested to know if you, by chance, looked at the location, if it was more anterior skull base in the cribriform versus clival region, and if that happened to make any difference in your leak rate at all. We did look at that. Most defects were indeed transplantum and transtuberculum, both in the adult patient and the pediatric patient. There was no significant difference. Um, And there was no significant difference between the two cohorts about where leaks tended to occur. I know that traditionally it tends to be, you know, clival or or really high flow leaks. In this case, there was no significant difference between uh, locations. And that's why we didn't really touch on it too much in the paper. That's excellent information to know. I was interested to hear if you could talk in general about any precautions that were routinely employed in these patient populations to reduce the potential for CSF leak or pneumocephalus, especially in the early postoperative period. I know sometimes people employ strict bed rest for a specified period of time, activity restrictions restriction of CPAP use, especially in the adult population, that sort of thing. So maybe if you could could touch on those. Yeah, absolutely. And this was actually one of our fears with the kids, as I alluded to before, was that they wouldn't be able to follow some of our precautions. So we're pretty algorithmic where small pituitary defects, patients can get up walking around that same day. But when we have these expanded nasals, at least at our institutions, we do 48 hours bed rest. And after that, uh, and we typically do play some packing in the nose, they get nasal trumpets um, for the first day as well, just in case they get over sedated and they need some, some sort of urgent ventilation in the ICU. And then uh, we will typically leave the packing in for two weeks. So we'll see if their first post-op visit with us will be two weeks after surgery, we remove the packing. And as I said, this, this was our, our fear. I, I remember when my early kids, he was an eight-year-old kid, he was on strict bed rest and I came to see him on post-op day one morning is playing video games and jumping up or up and down in the bed in his room at shop. And I was flipping out that our, our recon wasn't going to hold. So those have been our challenges with the kids, but I think there's other intrinsic factors where potentially I'm, you know, they, as we all know, kids heal up quicker. And we have seen this in our kids. We typically take that packing out in the operating room if they're under about 12 years of age, just because at least in our hands, not very cooperative, younger than that. And when we take out the packing in the OR, you really can see that they, they just heal much quicker than the adults. So I, I don't know if that's what the factor is, that's kind of tipping the scale and not seeing any differences there, but that's one thing we've really noticed. Sure. I think we see that 
even in our own children, right? It's sometimes amazing to see how quickly their little cuts and scrapes heal. So you mentioned packing. What type of packing are you traditionally using? We typically use Xeroform gauze. So we really like Xeroform gauze just because we're able to really mold it up against the defect site. We had tried a number of different sponges and balloons and things like that, but at least in our hands, we felt like we really couldn't get that to really contour along the flap. So we use Xeroform where we really line it right up against the nasoceptive flap. And that gauze has that kind of vaselinated material on it. So we can take that out pretty easily where it doesn't stick to anything and it comes out pretty easily and, and pretty atraumatically. Like I said, packing can mean lots of different things to different people. And so, you know, it can be anything from some of the dissolvable materials that are available to nasal tampons or balloons or Xeroform gauze, as you mentioned. So there's lots of different options out there and, and different techniques and everybody's kind of got their favorites and those things can vary certainly from patient to patient and leak to leak. You know, I find that in my hands, sometimes the high flow versus low flow leaks and different types of reconstruction methods will sometimes dictate what I put in their nose to hold that in place. So this is helpful to know that, that uh, what you're doing in these high flow leaks. So for the last portion of our discussion, I really wanted to talk about some of the nuances of transnasal endoscopic skull-based surgery in the pediatric population specifically. Are there certain things that you think about that are different from how you plan a similar surgery in adults, nuances in the pediatric population, precautions that you might take, tips that you can share with us. You guys have really established yourself in this space, and I'd like to hear some of your thoughts on that. I can start touching on it, and then Dr. Dopp, I'm sure we'll fill in some gaps too. But I think the first and foremost thing is you realize that you can do these kinds of operations endonasally in extremely young children. I think the youngest in this cohort was about two and a half years old with a craniopharyngioma. Not only that, but we do these operations with adult instruments. <laughs> so it's pretty amazing kind of the access you can get using this kind of instrumentation in, in very small children. I think the biggest thing is gaining access. So for us, when most of these defects were transplantum, transtuberculum, it's that we know we're going to expose, you know, a large amount of the skull base with a posterior septectomy. So a lot of times these operations would begin doing a partial middle turbinectomy, doing a posterior septectomy. Once you do that, you can easily use a, a three-handed approach or you, know, you just have a lot more room once you do that posterior septectomy to open the sinuses normally, almost as you would in an endoscopic sinus surgery to give you that broad exposure to the skull base. So I found that to be really eye-opening and that, that, that is one of the keys to getting great exposure. Other areas to think about that we thought about early on were we, we weren't sure if the nasal septal flap would be long enough in all of our patients. So we actually did early on some studies looking at the length of nasal septal flaps, essentially using CT scans and the length actually for the most part, I mean, we haven't had any issues and, and you could see the length works out just fine. And then the other big issue on the kids is the pneumatization of the sphenoid sinus. So a lot of these sphenoid sinuses are completely non-pneumatized and that makes life a little bit trickier because you don't have your OCRs as some your lateral landmarks. And essentially you're, you're almost drilling blind a little bit. And the problem with that also is it's a little bloodier drilling through that bone. So we have found, whereas adults where we're exposing the skull-based bone, typically we're just by ourselves. You can just drill that down, no problem. 
with the kids, we'll often, if it's a fellow and myself or Pete and I spend many, many days of chop where he'll be drilling and I'll actually be holding a suction just to suction away the blood for that pneumatized bone. But once you get back to Dura, it's, it's standard fare. You're able to expose it pretty well. It's just, you just have to be prepared for that. Right. And I'm, I'm anticipating you're raising the nasal septal flap initially early on in the case as you would in the adult or most of these. Yes. Correct. And it, it would be an expanded flap where we would really take, you know, most of the whole septum mucosa and extend it to the floor and slightly the lateral wall as well underneath the inferior turbinate. And you could take it as one large flap and use that to basically reconstruct the whole skull base. We would do that early on, then do the septectomy to gain broad exposure. Sure. One other question that I, I feel like some of our listeners may be wondering, you know, the traditional teaching in children, uh, especially young children, is that we don't really mess with the septum early on for fear of growth issues and nasal development and that sort of thing, even when we're thinking about septoplasty. Have you all seen any issues or had any concerns about raising the septal flaps, doing these large septectomies, that sort of thing in these children undergoing skull-based surgery? So interestingly enough, Sarah, we actually did look at that as well, because that was a major concern for us as well. And actually a concern we wanted to tell our parents for our patients is really with all the old data, which is quite mixed as far as how much surgery you can do, how much septal work you can do. We would, when I consented patients, we would always explain to the parents that this is a risk that we're not sure about, and that this is somewhat of a novel approach that we're using. So several years ago, we actually published in Laryngoscope where what we did was we wanted to look at uh, mid-face growth. And we took about 20 patients, pediatric patients, and we also took uh, about 20 patients who had open craniopharyngiomas. And the other challenge with craniopharyngiomas, a lot of them have growth hormone deficits. So we were trying to keep it a standard population. So we took a transcranial approach and an endoscopic approach. And we took all patients that had at least three-year follow-up And we actually looked with the radiologist, we looked at the cephalometrics based on their MRIs, and we saw no difference whatsoever in their growth along their nose and septum from that standpoint. So we've been pretty confident with that data, and we actually are continuing to following that up, and I'm sure we'll have another paper out as we get that data out there further. But we feel very good telling our patient population's parents that we haven't seen any growth problems. That is fantastic. I think that will end our discussion about this paper. Thank you so much for joining me, Nitin and Peter. It's been an excellent discussion. And again, congratulations to you and your colleagues on your publication. And thank you, of course, to our Scope It Out listeners. This is Sarah Wise for Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm signing off for now, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast are those of podcast hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or the sponsors.